This month's edition of the JNNP features new research assessing the structural and functional integrity of the visual system in patients with multiple sclerosis who are treated with alantuzumab. This data is particularly important as neurologists continue to refine treatment approaches for their patients, particularly as we move closer towards remodernation strategies in MS. Joining me now to discuss the findings of their paper is its senior author, Professor Michael Barnett. Professor Barnett is the research director at the Sydney Neuroimaging Analysis Centre and is professor of neurology at the Brain and Mind Centre, University of Sydney, where he also directs a busy tertiary referral service for those with MS run jointly with Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. So uh, a very warm welcome and thanks for joining us, uh, Michael. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Colin. So I might just start by asking you, uh, what was the rationale that led you and the other authors to conduct the current study? And why in particular did you choose to focus on the visual system? Sure, both good questions. I suppose initially we saw from a clinical perspective that our patients treated with alentuzumab not only tended to stabilise from both a clinical and MRI perspective, but a significant proportion of them uh, had both clinical improvements that tended to um, continue for a number of years after their therapy and also patients in the clinical trial setting have had sustained reduction in brain atrophy rates for very long periods. And it begged the question of whether this was all simply due to profound effects on the immune system so-called anti-inflammatory effects of the drug that were prolonged and uh, potentially led to secondary neuroprotection or whether there was some other mechanism by which the drug was acting to promote repair. So that was the, the, the rationale. We also wanted to further our own research interests in biomarkers. In particular, we have focused on the visual system as a way of interrogating both the structure and the function of a particular pathway in multiple sclerosis. And in terms of why, I suppose, firstly, we would say that in MS, clearly the visual system is very frequently involved. So one in every five patients will present with optic neuritis and over 50% of patients develop optic neuritis during the course of MS. Um, also, particularly with reference to imaging, this is important. Patients also develop lesions in the posterior visual pathway. So optic radiation lesions are present in 70% or more of patients with MS, although they are largely sub subclinical. Uh, in addition to that, so, you know, on that background, we've also got tools to investigate or interrogate the function, uh, not just the structure. So from a functional perspective, we've got clinical tests like low contrast visual acuity, which is now an endpoint in remyelination studies. We've got electrophysiology in the form of visual evoked potential and in particular multifocal visual evoked potential. Um, and we can monitor structure with OCT, which allows us to measure the thickness of the retinal nerve fibre layer, which is a known marker of axonal loss. And finally, we can use imaging uh, to 
uh, interpret uh, both the optic nerve and the optic radiation with both standard structural metrics, but also now looking at the microstructure of these pathways and our particular focus has been on diffusion imaging metrics and the capacity to interpret those in terms of axon and myelin integrity in pathways which are coherent, such as the, the optic radiation. So your patients were indeed very well uh, characterized, very well phenotyped. They underwent detailed clinical and neuroimaging assessments. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, cohort of patients you had in your study? And you've already alluded to some of the methods you, you use, but uh, maybe a little more detail on some of the clinical and visual assessments they underwent. Sure. So in terms of the, the subjects, I mean, these were patients that you might typically put on uh, a highly efficacious therapy like elentuzumab. So these were patients with relapsing disease between the ages of 18 and 60, and these patients had had either a clinical relapse or a gadolinium-enhancing lesion suggestive of acute inflammation within the year prior to enrolment. And, in fact, the patients who we ultimately did enrol were quite active and I think the mean gadolinium-enhancing number at baseline was more than five in these patients uh, and sometimes significantly higher. Uh, our patients uh, had uh, relatively low EDSS scores. The criteria for enrolment was up to five and a disease duration of less than, than 15 years. And we had 30 patients with relapsing MS, and we also included a cohort of 20 healthy controls, really as just a reference population rather than as a true control population. In terms of um, the methods we used, I've touched on these already, but you know we, we collect standard demographic and EDSS metrics as you do in most MS studies, but we also had our main clinical outcome as as the um, low contrast visual acuity, the Mars letter score, which ultimately, as it turned out, we got quite excited in this study when we saw quite dramatic improvements in that. But it, fortunately, we included a, a healthy control population as well, and we saw exactly the same pattern of improvement in the healthy controls. And we, we believe that was a learning effect and is a lesson learned for future phase two trials. So we also had more objective tests and that the main outcome, the primary outcome of our study was shortening of the multifocal uh, visually evoked potential latency over the course of the study. So it was a 24-month study. Um, and the secondary endpoint was change in microstructure within lesions in the optic radiation. Um, and that was measured on the basis of changes in diffusion metrics. So in that, that instance, from a methodological point of view, we used a template-based method to segment out the optic radiation on scans. Uh, we then had lesions on these scans themselves segmented. We excluded active lesions, so any gadolinium-enhancing lesion from any time point was excluded in the study, that region of interest, because acute inflammation can have dramatic effects on the diffusivity metrics. And here in this study, we were trying to measure changes in uh, chronic MS lesions, where the chronic MS lesions could be remyelinated. 
And similarly, in our visually evoked potentials, we excluded patients in whom uh, optic neuritis occurred either clinically or on the basis of the VEP latency change between time points in the study. Again, because obviously if you get uh, an episode of optic neuritis, whether clinical or subclinical during the course of the study and your outcome metric for remyelination is a shortening of VEP latency, you're going to confound that by the inclusion of those patients. So in it, we pre-specified that we would exclude patients either who had optic neuritis clinically or who developed an abrupt change in VEP latency of more than eight milliseconds between consecutive time points. In the end, we only had two patients or should I say two eyes out of the 60 eyes examined in the 30 patients who were in that category. Um, in terms of OCT, we used standard measures of RNFL, and uh, I think really that's probably the summary of the main measures we used in the study. Yeah, so I think you've, you've really helpfully talked us through the, the key methodologies in your study. And I think a real strength of this is that fact that you had, you know, this was quite a, a long period of longitudinal follow-up for your patients. I might um, then at the end of the trial, when the patients kind of completed all their assessments, what were the kind of summary um, characteristics, maybe a baseline and then moving towards the, the terminal phase of your study? What did you, what did you find? So as I said at baseline, this was a, a group of patients who were highly active both clinically and radiologically. Um, we had a proportion of our patients um, with evidence of uh, demyelination in the optic pathway at baseline on the basis of their multifocal VEP latency. The, the average latency or mean latency at baseline was uh, in patients with MS was 162 milliseconds, whereas in healthy controls it was 149 milliseconds. It's an interesting point, though, looking at these baseline characteristics because our results, which I'll come to in a moment, would have been strengthened had we only analysed a subgroup of patients in whom we could see evidence of demyelination at baseline. Because when you think about it, of course, if you give a drug that is remyelinating, you can't expect to get better than normal. Um, and so if we examined only that subgroup with evidence of prolonged VEP latency at baseline, which we did in a post hoc analysis rather than the primary analysis, we would have had better results. So in terms of what happened over the course of the study, in terms of the main outcome, so over 24 months, we did see a shortening of the multifocal VEP latency. And in particular, uh, we saw a, um, a shortening, a mean shortening of 1.21 milliseconds over the course of the study, which was significant with a p-value of 0.013. So it doesn't seem like much, but it was significant. And interestingly, in the healthy cohort, we actually showed a non-significant increase in the multifocal BEP latency by about 0.7 milliseconds. As I mentioned before, if in a post hoc analysis where we looked only at those patients who had evidence of demyelination at baseline, the result was slightly more robust with a shortening of the latency of 1.44 milliseconds over the course of the study. From an imaging perspective, I think really th this is where we, we need to refine our outcomes better and we need to perhaps have more specific measures of demyelination and remyelination. At the moment, most MRI metrics are 
uh, confounded by the presence of other pathologies that affect those metrics. So axonal loss, gliosis, inflammation, edema affect you know, diffusion metrics, MTR, and even the so-called myelin-specific sequences are not completely myelin-specific. We tried to minimise that by studying a coherent fibre pathway. That means a fibre pathway with no kissing or crossing fibres in which the diffusion metrics can be uh, more readily interpreted. And we did find some significant changes in our data, although uh, perhaps not reaching the level of significance we would have liked to have seen to prove remyelination within the chronic lesions within the optic radiation. So what did we see? We saw in these patients that the axial diffusivity and the normalised fractional anisotropy increased between baseline and 24 months. And while there was a reduction in normalised radial diffusivity, which is said to be a measure of remyelination, it didn't reach significance in our study. I think, as I said before, you know, there are, there are potential reasons for that. Uh, one of the interesting things we did see was over a period of two years, stability of mean diffusivity within lesions. So one usually finds that within chronic MS lesions, there's evidence of progressive loss of axons, and that is reflected by a progressive increase in T1 hypointensity and a progressive increase in mean diffusivity in many of the studies published, including our own today. So it was interesting in this study that we demonstrated stability of MD over 24 months within these chronic MS lesions, and it would be Nice to speculate that that was due to neuroprotection on the basis perhaps of remyelination within these lesions being promoted by the therapy. One thing I suppose when interpreting all of these results that I've mentioned is that this study does not allow one to differentiate between a permissive effect of the therapy versus a completely separate mode of action of the therapy in terms of pro-reparative or pro-remyelinating modes of action. It may simply reflect that the therapy creates a milieu by having such sustained anti-inflammatory effects, creates a milieu that allows natural restorative remyelination to occur. And uh, as I say, unfortunately, we can't differentiate between the two, but certainly I think the study provides some insights into the mechanisms uh, at play in patients who have such sustained uh, uh, either stability or in some cases improvements in their clinical metrics so I might just ask, just as a final thought, final comment. Um, so I think there's a lot of food for thought in, in your um, publication, but we do seem to be moving more towards um, remodelation therapies uh, in MS. What do you think the, the main kind of takeaways your study provides to kind of building momentum in this area? And, uh, and do you think, um, you know, you've chosen alumtuzumab, do you think results like yours will have impact on neurologists' choice and in initial therapy for uh, treating their MS patients? So I think the study does highlight a few considerations that are pertinent when considering the design of remyelination studies. And as you know, these studies are, are popping up 
around the world now phase two studies in a number of settings, uh, both using repurposed existing therapies and, and novel therapies. Um, one of the points that I think this study stresses is that it, it's quite difficult from a clinical perspective to interpret results, uh, particularly when there is a learning effect. I also think that we need to take a step back when we're thinking about remyelination studies in terms of are we really expecting a clinical improvement over the two to three year time frame of a phase two study in the sense that uh, most of the clinical deficit in MS is attributable not to lack of myelin but to axonal loss. And so remyelination may have its benefit in MS over a much longer time frame in the sense that it may afford neuroprotection and protect against progressive axonal attrition that occurs over years. And ultimately, even if we can prove that a drug remyelinates, it may take four or five or more years to really have the clinical benefit um, uncovered. So that's going to be a big effort, not just on behalf of companies or investigators, researchers running these studies, but also may require a change in the mindset of regulators who at present really only accept uh, improvements in clinical outcomes rather than in biomarker outcomes. Um, that's just some general thoughts on the area in terms of first drug that we give in MS. Look, I think what does the future hold? The future therapies that we will be giving to our MS patients will probably, over the next five to 10 years, include both an anti-inflammatory therapy that's highly efficacious, alentuzumab being one of them, and I suspect probably a second concurrent pro-remyelinating therapy that's given concurrently from the time of diagnosis. Now, if we have a therapy that we could prove had a dual mode of action, anti-inflammatory and pro-reparative, well, that would be fantastic. I, I, as I say, I don't think we can draw that conclusion from this study. It, it's, it's certainly promising in terms of providing mechanistic insights into the action of alentuzumab, but I don't think it differentiates a permissive effect from an actual separate mode of action. So I think in, you know, in five to 10 years, um, if I'm still practicing MS neurology, I think I'll be prescribing a drug like alentuzumab or one of the other highly efficacious therapies. But I'm hopeful that the current phase two studies around the world will yield a drug that we can give concurrent with, to our patients to preserve axons, provide neuroprotection from day one of their disease. Well, it sounds like the uh, drug choices uh, available to neurologists for MS will only get more, not less, potentially um, more complicated. Yes. Uh, but for now, um, I think that's a you know fantastic piece of new and important work that I think will help us refine trials and, and decision-making into the future for our MS patients. And I want to thank Professor Barnett for sharing his insights on uh, his work. I remind you all that uh, this paper is available at the JNNP website to download now for free and hope you'll all tune in to the next podcast. Thanks and goodbye.